our scripture reading this morning is from Luke. We're continuing in the parables. It's found on page 874 in the Pew Bible. So if you want to follow along with the physical Bible or on your phone, if you have the Bible app or something, I would love for you to open that up right now. And then also, if you don't have a Bible, if you happen to not have one, we would love to just offer that one up for you if you want to take that one home for yourself. Okay, it's from Luke 15, verses 11 through 19. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kate. Well, it is so good to see each of you here this morning, and uh, it's been a long time for some of us. A few of us were able to be here back together. I know there's new faces this week, so if this is your first week back in the building with us, we're so glad that you are here and, uh, and joining with us in this way. And this has obviously been an unusual time for all of us and in the life of the church as well, and I just want to I just wanted to take, I didn't get to do this last week, but I just wanted to take a moment and first of all, just thank you for the ways that you have loved and supported and cared for one another. Even though we haven't been meeting in this building, you've been doing that in lots of ways. Uh, and also for the ways that you've continued uh, to, yeah, just to love your, your church family. Um, also, I just wanted to pause here for a moment too. And I, I think there most of them are here in the room. Some of them are probably still out there, but I just want to say, I want us to give a round of applause to your pastoral staff, to Anna Lynn, to Holly, to others who have led so well during this time. Uh, and so, yeah, just they've made this happen. So, so thankful for our, our pastors and our facilities team. I mean, there's so many people, you guys, who have made uh, our online services happen, who have made this moment happen um, far more uh, than, than probably many of us will ever realize in terms of working behind the scenes. And I'm just so grateful for the team I get to serve with, both here, your pastors here and staff members here at Brookside, but as well as across Christ community as a whole. Um, so just so thankful for that. If you are a, uh, a kid here this morning, hopefully you got one of these bags that has some uh, crayons and pencils and coloring stuff. Um, we have the Kid Connect. As, as usual, so you can fill this out. We still have, you know, sanitized, wrapped uh, suckers available for you uh, after the service as well. So kids, if you fill this out, you can fill in the blanks, follow along on the screen um, and do that. We'd love for you to participate in the service in that way. So let's go ahead and begin uh, by praying just as uh, we look at this passage together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have brought us here. Uh, we thank you that... Um, you are building your church, and that nothing can stop that, um, and that you are doing that, you have been doing that. 
the church has not been closed, our buildings have been closed, but the church has not been closed, and that disciples are being made. So I ask now that as we look at this passage together, that you would teach us, that your spirit that we heard Casey sing over us, that we ask that you would make us aware of his presence as we hear the word of Jesus proclaimed. Amen. Well, as we learn more and more about how we are designed as human beings, how our brains work, how we are designed to function, we are learning not only from the scriptures, but from the best science and brain science that we were made, that we are designed for joy and for connection. And that explains why the isolation of the pandemic has been so difficult, so hard on our mental health. I was just talking to someone coming in that the mental health challenge of this is, is almost as great, if not perhaps greater, than the physical health challenges of these. And listen to what some leading counselors and psychologists point out about joy in the brain. This is what they write. The conclusion of the new science of relational neurobiology is that relational joy is the natural means for growing a strong, resilient mind. Joy is the most desirable and powerful motivating factors in our lives over the long haul. Neurobiology is showing us that our brains were designed to run on joy, on the fuel of joy. What the best Again, relational neurobiology shows is that is in deep harmony with this theme that runs throughout the Bible from beginning to end that we were created for connection and indeed for joy. Jesus, after speaking about this kind of deep abiding relationship that he has designed for him and his followers, says this in John chapter 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We were designed for joy. But here in Luke chapter 15, in the parable that Jesus tells and the setting around it, there is a deep tension because Jesus is doing the work of restoring joy to the lost and the lonely people, but there is a group there who see Jesus doing that work of, of restoring joy and they react with fear and suspicion. And one of the primary reasons that Jesus tells parables, and we're in the series, as Kate mentioned, looking at parables, one of the primary reasons that Jesus tells parables is to help us understand who he is and what he is doing. He's using parables often to explain what he's doing. And Jesus tells us this parable to explain why his work of restoring joy is being resisted. And this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often known, is one that's familiar to many of us, I think. But I think that the theme of joy in this particular parable is often overlooked. And so this morning, I want us to not miss the joy. As we walk through this passage, don't miss the joy. Because the joy in this story, and more importantly, the joy that is waiting for each one of us is found when we are found in Jesus. And as we afresh look at this parable, we're going to see this morning three movements, and then we're going to ask two questions, and finally suggest one practice. So three movements, two questions, and then one practice. 
And so the first movement in the parable that Jesus tells is the story of joy that has been abandoned. The first movement is one of joy being abandoned. But you have to go back to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, to understand why Jesus is telling this parable. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we're introduced to it in this way. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus, right here in this story, and Luke, who's recording it for us, introduces us to two categories of people. There are the irreligious tax collectors and sinners, and then there are the religious Pharisees and scribes. And the irreligious groups, the tax collectors, the sinners, they're drawing near to Jesus. They can't get enough of him, but the religious people, they are rejecting him. Jesus is someone that social and moral outcasts can't get enough of. They love him, but the religious insiders, they grumble. That's the same vocabulary, that grumbling vocabulary that's used in the Old Testament to describe the people's rebellion against Moses in the wilderness after God has delivered and rescued his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And now here, Jesus, who is the true and better Moses, who has come to deliver his people, to set them free from bondage, to bring them into joy, is also met with some who are grumbling against him. And so he tells three parables here, actually, in response. We uh, aren't looking at the first two, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But in those parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, both end with joy when the coin is found, when the sheep is found, the vocabulary of joy is there. But Jesus tells here also then a third parable about a story of joy being abandoned. There's a father with two sons, and the younger one does the unthinkable. He wishes his father dead by asking for his inheritance early, and it shows that he has abandoned the relationship with his father, and the bond of joy with his father has been completely broken. He would rather have his father's stuff, his father's material possessions, than have a relationship with his father. Joy is abandoned. But the story gets worse because not only does he wish his father dead, he then takes the wealth that he, that, you know, and, and you think about this, this wealth that it took his family probably generations to accumulate. And then in a fraction of the time that it took to build that wealth, to save it, to, to invest it in this farm and all the work that went into that, in just a fraction of the time, he completely wastes it and squanders it. All in wild living and partying until there's nothing left. And this is all of our stories at, at one level. Looking for joy in all the wrong places. Because the younger son, he is looking for joy, but instead of finding it in a relationship with his father, he's, he tries to find it in this partying. From the garden on, we have believed the lie that life is better on our own apart from the one who made us. But this is not where the story of the Bible ends in Genesis 3, nor is it where the story of this parable ends either, because in movement of two of the story, we see joy embraced. 
joy embrace. The son loses everything. He's in despair. He's close to starving to death, but then he comes to his senses, and he, and he tells us, or Jesus tells us here, that there's this moment where he says, you know, he says, literally, Jesus says, he comes to his senses. He comes back to his mind, and for all of us, returning to joy involves that moment. There's a moment in our lives when we come to our senses, Jesus says, and he realizes that his best chance to live is to go back home. And not as a son, he says, I, I, I'm not, I've, I've forfeited all relationship as a son, but I know that my father's servants, the people who work for him, at least they get a decent amount of food. They're not going to die. So I can go back and at least work as a servant. And so he prepares the speech and he trudges home. Verse 20, And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and what felt compassion for him. And he ran and he embraces his son. And and the son said to his father, he starts to give the speech he prepared, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But before he even has time to finish his speech, the father interrupts and says, to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put the ring on his hand and his shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The father was waiting for him. That's how he could see him a long way off. He, every day you can imagine he's going out and he's looking for his son and then when he sees him, his son doesn't even get to come all the way to the house before his father runs to meet him. And he welcomes him home. He embraces him in joy. Because notice that final word of the verse that we read. It says, let us eat and celebrate. Celebrate, the ESV translates that word. But that word is translated in many other places in the New Testament as, you guessed it, rejoice. Come on, let us eat and rejoice. This is joy being restored. Don't miss the joy. Don't miss the joy because the third movement in the story is actually that of joy being resisted. Joy resisted. It reminds us that joy can be missed. Joy can be resisted often by those who it would seem would be the first to want to embrace it. The older brothers who have never left home, at least not physically, But the older brother's response to what his father does in welcoming his younger brother home shows that he is just as far from the father's heart. He comes home from working out in the field and he finds there's a party in full swing and he asks what's going on and the servant tells him the the whole story. And the older brother, he's stunned and angry, verse 28, but, but he was angry and refused to go in. He's resisting the joy. He refuses to go, and his father came and and entreats him. He begs him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, father. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, as he doesn't even call him his brother, just the son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, 
Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate. It was fitting to rejoice and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. This is a moment for joy to be embraced. Don't resist the joy. But because his father's heart was far away, or because his heart was far away from the father, he he cannot, he will not enter into the joy. Tim Keller puts it this way in his must-read book on this, The Prodigal God. It's one of the finest, I think, just treatments of the story. Tim Keller writes this. He says, The hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from it. Each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad, the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. And Keller continues, do you realize what Jesus is teaching? Neither loved the father for himself. They were both using the father for their self-centered ends rather than in loving and enjoying and serving him for his own sake. Keller points out that means you can rebel against God by and be alienated from either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. So those are the three movements of joy abandoned, joy embraced, and joy resisted. But now for the two questions. And the first question for us is this, as we reflect on what does the story mean for us? Is are you reaching or are you resisting? Are you reaching or are you resisting? You see, every human being, when they are born, are you hardwired with an impulse to reach out? Little newborn infants, they have this impulse to reach, to reach for mom or dad. We are born reaching for someone who is reaching for us. That is how God designed us, made us, has woven us together. We are born reaching, reaching for someone, reaching for us. And this is true of your Father in heaven. He is reaching for you. His arms stand open, ready to receive you, longing to embrace you in joy. Are you reaching back or are you resisting? And remember, we can resist that embrace either by rebelling, kind of doing our own thing, outward rejecting, or we can do that in a religious way of trying to keep all the rules so that God will basically leave us alone and just give us what we want. If I'm just good and I obey the rules, then God will kind of not bother me and he will bless me and I don't have to interact with him. But both of those postures, either of rebellion or sort of religious obedience to get something from God, end us up with this posture rather than this one toward God. But how do you know if you're resisting? Well, here's a simple exercise. I think especially for those of us who would consider ourselves Christians who come to church regularly, who would say, you know, I'm... I'm, uh, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. I, I, I love him. But sometimes I think that resistance shows up in ways we wouldn't even expect. So here's a simple exercise. 
Just fill in the blank in this sentence. When God thinks of me, he feels blank. When God thinks of Bill, when God thinks of you, fill in your name, he feels blank. What's the word that just rushes into your mind? Feel disappointed, frustrated, delighted, proud, angry, ambivalent, joy. I know for me, often that gut level, heart level response to that question of what does God feel about me is often something like disappointed. Yeah, I, I love him, but I'm kind of have to tolerate this stuff that's not together in his life. Frustration, why hasn't he made more progress? And that just shows us how our fallen, sinful hearts work. They don't trust that God could or would actually really love us. Sure, maybe he could forgive us, but he's not really going to take joy in us. And I actually want you to listen to an extended quote. There's a wonderful little book that Rachel and I have been reading. It's called Gentle and Lowly. The heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. I just, if you need some encouragement in your walk with Jesus, I just pick up that book. It's just a, it's a refreshment for your soul. Gentle and lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And so I'm going to read you just a, a couple of paragraphs from this. But when I do that, I'm not going to have the text on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. But I'm actually going to put a painting up here. And this is Rembrandt's um, painting. I think, I think we have it. Um, this is Rembrandt's painting of the return, called Return of the Prodigal Son. Uh, if we don't have it, that's okay. And you'll just have to imagine, maybe if you've seen that painting. Um, but it's a great picture of the father embracing the younger son as he returns. So if that, I don't know, Matt, do we not have it? We don't have it. Matt says we don't have it. Okay, well, it's a beautiful painting. Sometime we ought to look it up. Google Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. And uh, it's a, just a beautiful picture of the father wrapping his younger son in this embrace. So maybe just even maybe close your eyes, just listen to these words. Imagine that scene. And listen to these words. Fallen and anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love, even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that giving enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. We tend to deflect Christ's assurances. No, wait, we say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than others see, but there's a perversity deep down inside of me that's hidden from everyone else. I know it all, Jesus says. Well, the thing is, is it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand Jesus says. But, but I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, Jesus says. But the burden is heavier and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it, Jesus says. It's too much to bear, not for me, Jesus says. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed at others. They are directed against you. 
then I'm the one most suited to forgive them, Jesus says. But the more ugliness in me you see and discover, the sooner you will be fed up with me and cast me out. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Are you reaching or are you resisting? Reach for the one who is reaching for you, who will wrap you in his arms and never, ever, ever cast you out. First question, are you reaching or are you resisting? Here's the second one. Are you fueled by joy or are you fueled by fear? Because our lives are running on one or the other. This is what neurobiology, neuroscience has increasingly shown us, that our brain sort of runs on two sort of emotional and even physiological fuels. One that is driven by joy, the other is fear. Those, all of our relationships and bonds with people are driven either by joy or by fear. And joy and fear actually, though, can produce very similar outcomes on the surface. Right? A student can produce great work in a classroom for a teacher who they are afraid of because they're afraid of, of that teacher's harshness or disapproval. They can earn an A. But there is also teachers who through their love of their students and the bond of joy that they have, that students want to produce great work for them because of the, of the joy that the teacher has in them. And there are so many Christians and often this is my, me, who do the right things, who obey all the rules, but do so not out of joy, but out of fear. Not out of a deep, unshakable sense of my Father's loving embrace, but out of a, a fear of the, that God is going to get me if I don't do the right things. Right? Joy, though, is found in being found by our Heavenly Father. He welcomes us home. His heart is inviting us to know him and to be known by him. He wants more than anyone else who has ever lived to be in relationship with you, to know you. Jim Wilder puts us this way, attachment begins with grace. Being the sparkle of joy in someone's eye. Joy is relational. Joy is someone being very glad to be with me. That is the essence of joy, is having the sense that someone is really glad to be with me. And that's why these two questions then lead us to our, our one practice. And that is if joy is, is a relationship marked by that deep sense of someone is glad to be with me. That's kind of that joy that we're talking about in the relationship. It's the simplest. It's just having a sense that, that this person is glad to be with me. They're happy to see me this morning. Then how do we remind ourselves that Jesus, in Jesus, that's exactly how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who made you, relates to you, thinks about you, feels about you. And I just want to suggest a practice. For the next seven days, make the first thing you do when you wake up before you step out of bed to repeat to yourself the truth, and this is the truth, that God loves you and that he wants to be with you today. Do you know that no one was happier this morning when you woke up about the prospect of spending the day with you, of being with you, of knowing you, than the God who made you, than Jesus himself? 
And I've been doing this for a couple weeks right now, and it might seem hokey, but I try to remind myself at the very beginning of my day that as I wake up, that, Bill, there is no one happier to be with you, no one no more excited to spend this day with you than Jesus. And again, that might seem hokey, but, but here's the deal. For those of us who have spent our entire lives and believing the lie that that is not true, at first it's going to seem a little strange you have to replace that lie. And it's not usually a spoken one, but that God actually is angry with me, that he doesn't want to be, he's disappointed with me. But in Jesus, there is no one happier, no one more excited, no one more longing to be with you from the moment you wake up than Jesus who made you. Then imagine, though, what would happen if you really began to live out of that truth in your life, and that sort of love and joy began to pour out of you into other people, that, that checkout clerks, that coworkers, that neighbors, that friends, that spouses, that they sense the same thing from you, that you genuinely are glad to see them and be with them, that you are looking for them, and that when you see them, you have joy toward them. How would that change? our every interaction. Whether it's just a brief interaction at a store checking out or especially over a lifetime with those who are in your family or close friends, coworkers that you spend day after day with. What if through you they encountered the love of Jesus Right? Jesus, he became the prodigal son for us. He became the one who left his home, who went to a far country, who suffered, and didn't just get close to dying, but actually did die. And he did all this for what? The joy that was set before him, the joy of receiving the lost and welcoming them home, the joy of holding them tight in that never-ending, never-letting-go embrace. And in communion, Jesus offers us the promise of that unfailing, never stopping, never giving up, joy overflowing embrace. And so right now, in this moment in our service, we want to celebrate that in communion, in that feast. And so please take out the communion elements that you are handed on your way in. If you happen to miss one of these on the table coming in, um, our usher team can, can get you those. So just raise your hand if you need this. Um, but go ahead and take this. And uh, yeah, you kind of peel off the top. You see how this works. Some of you were here last week. You peel off the top and you got your little, your little kind of styrofoam wafer of Jesus' body here. Um, and Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. And let's do that now together. Let's eat. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, drink of it all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when you have your, your cup open, let's, let's take and eat or drink together. This is his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given your body and your blood for us and that you have welcomed us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.